So today we continue this series called Discover the Hope. It's an important part of the series because we're picking up the story of people who encountered Jesus after Jesus calmed the storm on the sea, after he delivered from oppression the demoniac and the Gerasenes, and then sails back. And when he sails back, he encounters a situation in life extremely close to the one we've just encountered. We see a week from tomorrow makes three weeks, excuse me, three years, three years since the entire world shut down due to something called COVID-19. And in the last 36 months, in this country alone, one million people died from COVID-19. And in case that's not close enough for you, in the state of Indiana, over 28,000 people died directly from COVID-19. And in Madison County, Henry County, and Delaware County, over 1,000 people died. And that's just the people who died in the last three years directly from COVID-19. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of others in your circle and our collective circles of influence who have passed away from other situations, other health situations, some tragically, some quickly. And all of us have been faced with loss, extreme loss. For some of you university students, half of your high school career was spent online. Our society, lost multiple levels of civility in the last three years. We've lost all types of things, and when Jesus returned from the trip across the sea, he encountered a man who had loss. I don't know if you've lived long enough yet to recognize your loss. Several years ago, I uh, was asked to do a funeral for a lady in her 90s. I had known her for quite some time. She was a, a woman of great faith. She had impacted her family and loved her family deeply. When I arrived at the funeral home, it was like many other funerals for a Christ follower that I do. There was, there was the family gathering and the reacquainting and the shared memories and the looking at the pictures and, and telling the stories. But I noticed as we gathered together with just the family and the body lying in the casket, one of her grandsons, the, the grandson who the others would call her favorite, <laughs> the grandson that, that would pick her up every day and take her places, the grandson who, when he was young, would come home from school and she would be there to be his caregiver because his mother worked and his father worked and, and they were both working outside the home. They weren't working remotely from home. And so grandma became that person in his life. And they were extremely close. So close, in fact, that her daughter, his mother, had talked with me a day or two earlier to say, hey, would you kind of watch out for my son and called his name? Because he's really, really hurting. And as I watched all of the familiar things 
that I just mentioned going on in that room between cousins and aunts and uncles and siblings and all of the stuff going on as we got ready to celebrate the beautiful life of this lady who loved Jesus for decades. I noticed that that grandson kind of standing away from everybody else, kind of not really participating in the conversation. As is my custom, I, I walked immediately to the casket. And I, having known her for some time, was taking just a moment before I gathered the family to remind them of what the scripture teaches us, that the body that lies in the casket is not the person. It's how we knew the person. But the moment that person breathed their last breath of earthly air as a follower of Jesus Christ, because of his faithfulness to us, his salvation, his redemption, the next breath they took was celestial. And I gather every family to remind them of that so that we understand that when we lie that, lay that body in the ground, that we're not laying that person in the ground. That person, through faith in Jesus Christ, is sitting in the very presence of God. See, I don't know what heaven looks like. I know there are attempts to describe it. But here's what I do know about heaven. Wherever heaven is, Jesus is. Because Jesus said he's gonna be with his heavenly father. And he sits at the right hand of the father. And here's what I also know. For those of us who believe in Jesus, we are right there with Jesus. Because that's his promise to us. He said it in John chapter 14. If I didn't, you know, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, yeah, there are a lot of rooms. And I'm going to prepare a place for you, get this, so that where I am, there you may be also. And so I'm, I'm getting ready to gather the family. I'm standing at the casket, and, and suddenly I, I feel this person next to me kind of turn my head slightly, and it's that young man. He's eased up, and he begins to speak in kind of hushed tones, not wanting the rest of the family to hear. And he says, Pastor Kerry, God, God kind of uses Eastside Church a lot, doesn't he? Yeah. And when I've come to worship there, there have been, there've been many times when I've like really felt the presence of God in Eastside Church. I'm like, yeah. And, and you're, the, you're the pastor at Eastside Church, right? I'm like, yeah. You know that. He goes, yeah, I know. And, and, and you kind of get to speak in a lot of places, and, and people you know, are touched by God when you speak. And I'm, man, my ego's starting to kind of, well, yeah, yeah that's, that, that's, that's me. That's who I am a little bit, you know. He says, okay, so if you're that close to Jesus, raise my grandmother from the dead. Well, uh, excuse me? <laughs> I said, uh, well, son, let me explain something to you. That's already happened. Well, what do you mean that's already happened? I'm looking at her body. I said, no, no, you see, your grandmother had faith in Jesus Christ. She gave her life to him before you were even born. And she followed him faithfully all of her life. She discovered the joy of living in connection to him. And so what you need to know is what I'm about to tell everybody in the room. This is not your grandmother. This is her body. She is present with God. Right now, she has been resurrected. And he looks at me and said, yeah, but, but I can't hug her now. 
She can't hug me now. My pain, my loss, I get it. And because I did know him, and because I did care about him, I, I took the, the action of reaching out and putting my arms, my arm around his shoulder and standing there with him and weeping for just a little bit with him and walking him through this loss, this deep, deep loss to try to help him. And now today, I want to try to help all of you understand that no matter how deep your pain, no matter how drastic your loss, Jesus Christ is with you. He is the hope for the world, not because he's something that we reach for, but because he's someone who reaches to us. And that's what Jesus encountered when he came back across the sea after delivering the Gerasene demoniac putting him in his right mind, rightly clothed, and then telling him, go tell everybody in your villages what God has done for you. When Jesus returned, there was a crowd waiting on him. Listen, as I read it for you, from Luke chapter eight, I'll start reading at verse 40. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you'd like a Bible, there's one under every chair here in the auditorium. But also, if you'd like to read along, it'll be on the screens as well. For those of you who are at home, if you're not watching on your phone, it's actually in the app, in the Eastside app. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed in around him. Now at that moment, Luke begins to tell us another story of another person who encountered Jesus. A lady we'll talk about next week who had been sick for years but in the press of that crowd managed to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and find healing. But the person I want you to see today is a person we often don't see because of that story of that lady. It's this synagogue ruler named Jairus. What I want you to see today is that Jairus was in a situation much like many of us. The situation was beyond his control. His daughter, 12 years old, his only daughter, he loved her deeply, and she is, as the old phrase would say, sick unto death. She is not going to get well. She is dying. And in that moment of recognizing that she is dying, Jairus comes to Jesus. Now, we hear that 2,000 years later, and we go, well, okay, that makes sense. Jesus is a healer. This man comes to Jesus with the crown. But no, see, there are some things about the way he had to come. See, things we miss when we don't understand Jewish culture or the first century culture. See, it's summed up in just this simple description. Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. See, that, that just sounds like, okay, yeah, he's a ruler. He's got to put, no, no, listen. He is, he is the ruler of the synagogue. In every village in Israel where there were enough men together to formulate 
a, a group of men that could form the synagogue, there would be a place of worship. If there weren't a specific number of men, enough of them in that room, then they would place, create a place of prayer. But in the Jewish community, when there were enough men to, to, to satisfy the need I, I, that they could have a place of worship, they would create a building called a synagogue. They couldn't get to the temple in Jerusalem all, every week on Sabbath, but they could gather in their village. And so as they gathered in their village, they would choose among them someone who was a Pharisee normally, someone who was religious, someone who could be trusted, someone who was given the faith to, to keep the faith and keep it for their village, keep it for their community. And that's who, that's who Jairus was. He was a ruler in the synagogue in his village. And so even that, when I describe it to you 2,000 years later, you're like, okay, well, yeah, yeah. But you have to understand, Jesus, Jesus didn't fit all the criteria for a synagogue ruler to come and fall at his feet. See, Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus was from Nazareth. Jesus didn't go to synagogue school past the age of 12 because he wasn't one of the authorized rabbinical trainees. No, Jesus was the son of God. Jesus argued in the temple with people when he was 12 years old, but Jesus didn't go through all the hoops that you had to go through even to do what Jairus did. Jairus was a man of power. Jesus was a man of more power, we know, but not to the people of that day. To the people of that day, Jesus was just a rambling, wandering teacher who, oh, by the way, was doing miracles that no one else had ever done before. And the rumor was, he was the Messiah. But for Jairus to come and to, and not just come and talk to Jesus, you know, I don't know if you've ever you know, met people, there, there's a certain protocol when you meet someone who is, who is special, that the world sees as special. Uh, Friday night, I was over in Ohio at Alliance Ohio at University of Mount Union with the Anderson University basketball team, who by the way, just had an outstanding season. And they just played the number three team in the country and came closer to beating them than no one else has beat them in their gym. It was two minutes left. Our guys are one point behind. Unfortunately, we ended the game behind, but we were that close. But before our game, New York University was playing. New York University has a grad transfer starting for them whose grandfather, if you know anything about basketball, is a man named Mike Krzyzewski who just retired after decades as the coach at Duke University. And his grandson, who walked on and was a part of the Duke University team until he graduated, is now in grad school at NYU and had eligibility left, so he's playing for them, and they're playing the game before us. And guess where Grandpa was? He was in the gym. And there were some people who came up to me and said, are you gonna go get a selfie with Mike Krzyzewski? I'm like, first of all, he doesn't know me, all right? I said, and secondly, I don't do that. He said, there's, there's, there's a certain protocol, you know? I mean, if he wants to take a selfie with me, that's fine, all right? <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing. Jairus comes up to Jesus, and, and he doesn't just come up and say, hey, my name's Jairus. I'm the ruler of the synagogue over in here. How you doing, man? Good to see you. No, no. He comes to Jesus, and you heard it, didn't you? He fell at his feet. Now, in order for Jairus to do that, he had to, there were all kinds of barriers that I've just described to you. 
social, religious, family, all of it. For him to come as the ruler of the synagogue in his village, as a Pharisee, to come to Jesus and to bow in front of him, it's a desperate move. It's the move of someone who's experiencing extreme loss. Kind of loss many of us have experienced in the last 36 months. And what did Jesus do? Jesus returned. Jesus responded. See, Jesus always responds to our loss, regardless of the barriers, regardless of the distractions, regardless of the detractors. Because you see, in this story, he, this man broke all these barriers to come and say to Jesus, my daughter's dying, I need you to help me. And when they started out, he's in a big crowd, and the crowd is pressing against him, and everybody's, oh, he's going to Jairus' house. He's going to Jairus' house. They're gonna, they're, he's going to heal Jairus' daughter. But as they're going, this woman that we're going to talk about next week, she presses in against him. And I love that dialogue. We'll talk about it some more next week. But when she presses in and touches the hem of his garment, Jesus stops in the middle of a crowd and says, who touched me? <laughs> and the disciples are all like, Jesus, there's like a whole lot of people here. <laughs> Lots of people are touching you. He goes, no, no, no. Somebody touched me in faith and power went out from me. We'll talk about that next week. But you see, it would have been really easy for Jesus to just heal that woman as he did, dialogue with that woman as he did, and forget about Jairus' daughter. See, Jesus doesn't do that. When we experience the kind of pain that we've been walking through for the last three years, when we experience the kind of loss that my friend at the funeral home was talking about with his grandmother, when we experience all the pain, all the suffering, all the hurt, what you've got to know is this. Jesus responds to your loss regardless of the barriers, regardless of the distractions, and actually regardless of the detractors. Because when, when they got to Jairus' house, they, they went in spite of the message. Because if you keep reading in Luke chapter eight, you discover that after Jesus heals this woman, after Jesus sends this woman on her way to live in faith, completely whole instead of broken, someone shows up from Jairus' house and says to Jairus, hey, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter died. Your daughter's dead. It, 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 don't, don't, don't bother him anymore. Maybe you've been at that place in your life. Maybe you've been at that place in your life where you were so, so desperate and you need God to respond. But God doesn't respond in the timing you want him to respond with. He, he doesn't come through when you think he ought to come through. And so as a result, now suddenly you get more bad news. Not only is your only daughter who's 12 years old sick, but now she's dead. And it's in that moment the moment when Jesus is responding in spite of the barriers, in spite of the distractions, in spite of the, the detractors, that we discover that Jesus needs us to respond to his response. And here's how he needs us to respond, with belief. See, when they come and they tell Jairus, hey, listen, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Jesus turns to him and says, Jairus, listen, just keep believing. Have faith. Don't fear. Don't fear. I mean, look, 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 look at, these, at these words. 
while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, hearing it, answered him, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. <laughs> now, when he says that, nobody's raised anybody from the dead around there ever. This hasn't been known to happen. And so what happens is, he says to Jairus, look, I need you to believe and respond in faith and respond in belief. No matter what they tell you, no matter what the detractors tell you. Then when they get there, it's even more humorous, if you would, now that we know the end of the story. Because we know who Jesus is. We know that Jesus has the power to, to raise the dead. We've, we've read that part of the book. We've seen Jesus heal people. These people hadn't seen that. They hadn't heard that. And so what they're doing is what they normally do when someone dies. I mean, this is a man of stature. This is Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. His daughter has died. And so the word goes out through the village. And the official mourners show up. In Jewish culture in the first century, there were people who were actually paid by the synagogue to mourn for those who were dead. And they would mourn in a couple of different ways. One way. Mark tells us about when he tells this story, which by the way, I love the fact that this story is in all, the, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and when Mark tells the story, he says that they actually had their flutes with them. See, these people were paid musicians and paid mourners, and they were there to celebrate the life. They were there to help people mourn. They were doing all of that, and, and Jesus walks up. And he says to Jairus, listen, don't, don't, don't lose hope. There's hope. Don't, don't just, just keep believing, Jairus. And this morning, what I want you to know is when you are in a place where you're hurting, where you've had loss, where your pain is so deep you can hardly find the words, what you've got to know is Jesus is responding. He is coming to you. No matter what the barriers, no matter what the distractions, no matter what the detractors are, he's coming to you. He's there with you. And what he wants you to do is to fear not and keep trusting him. Keep believing in him. Because when you do that, he begins to respond to that ridicule of those people with this unbelievable determined action. Jesus doesn't just leave you hanging. He doesn't just, you know, he's got, he's got an action step for this. He tells Jairus, Jairus, look, put all these people outside the house. Put them outside the house. And you and your wife, come with me. Peter, James, John, leave the other nine disciples out here. Hey, you three guys, come with me. And so the six of them walk into the room where this 12-year-old girl's lying on the bed, dead. And Jesus keeps telling them, she's not dead. She's asleep. The people outside the room are mocking him. In fact, in Mark's gospel and and, and Luke's gospel and Matthew, listen, this is the only place you're gonna find where people laughed at Jesus. But they laughed at him. This man has lost his mind. We know when somebody's dead, that girl is dead. And then Jesus does, does three things that are just unbelievable, determined action. The first is, he looks at her and he reaches out and he takes her by the hand. Now, we leave that and go, oh, well, yeah, he just, you know, patting her hand. No, listen to me. In Jewish century, first century Jewish culture, to touch a dead body was to defile yourself. Remember, Jairus is a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the synagogue. 
He knows this. He knows that for Jesus to touch the body of any dead person is to make himself ceremonially unclean, to defile himself. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus reaches right down and he touches the little girl's hand. He takes her by the hand, the scripture tells us. Why is that such a big deal? Because no matter what you've done in your life and no matter what's been done to you, you are never so dead that the Son of God will not reach out and take your hand. You're never so lost that he can't come into the room where you think it's all death and destruction and reach out and take your hand and put at risk anything religious because he loves you. And then he does this amazing thing, even more amazing than than, than risking his cleanliness spiritually. He begins to speak to the little girl. Luke doesn't give it to us in, in Aramaic, but Mark does. And Aramaic would have been the, the language. Mark, Mark, Mark quotes it in Aramaic and then defines it. Luke just tells us the definition. What Luke says is, little child, arise. What, what Mark tells us is, Jesus in Aramaic said, Talitha kumi. Talitha kumi. Talitha kumi was the greeting a mother would give her daughter, her child, in the morning when they woke up. That would be, you know, that, that moment when your kids have overslept, hey, parents, and you have to go in and you have to wake them up, and there's that moment where you say, hey, it's time to get up. That, that would be Talitha Kumi. Little one, arise. It's this loving, caring, motherly kind of, kind of expression. And what I love about this is that when Jesus does that for that 12-year-old little girl, it's letting us know he's gonna do it for you too. He's going to look at you no matter how deep your pain, no matter how, how unimaginable your loss, and he's going to reach out and risk the defilement of anything religious because he loves you so much, he'll risk everything for you. And he's going to grab you by the hand, and he's going to speak directly to your soul and say, my little child, my, my, my little daughter, my little boy, arise. See, Jesus responds to the detractors with this unbelievable, determined action to say, I love you more than they ridicule you. I'll cross every barrier. I'll go through every distraction. I'll I'll bypass every detractor so that you can respond with love and faith and you can experience my grace and my mercy. And then... When he says, Talitha Kumi, little one, arise, the girl sets up, stands to her feet. And Jesus does the third thing. The thing that, again, you would miss if you didn't know the culture. See, remember, he told them she was asleep because he understood that death is not a destination. Death is a doorway into an eternal connection with God for those who believe in Jesus. It's a doorway into eternal separation from God for those who reject Jesus. But this young lady is being being raised. She's, She's being resurrected, just like you can be after your death, except for the fact that for her, it was physical, 
so that her parents would understand and her village would understand and the world would understand that Jesus not only can heal bodies, but he can make bodies and he can resurrect them. And so Jesus says, give her something to eat. Give her something to eat. Why is that important? It's important because, because he wants them to know this is not a spirit. This is not their imagination. This is not a, some kind of group hallucination. No hypnosis involved. No, no, this is real. This is really happening. The dead girl has been brought back to life. No one else has ever done that. Jesus does that. And it's important for us to know because, again, no matter what happens to you or me in our life, if our faith is in Jesus Christ, if our belief is in him and we're so willing to put it, our faith in him, he will raise us from the dead. He will raise us into the presence of God because that's the promise Jesus makes. And see, when that happens, then you actually end up with this situation. Look at what happens here. He says, he allows no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all the people were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. Her spirit returned. She got up at once. And what Jesus is wanting us to do is the same thing he did for Jairus. He's inviting us to overcome our doubt with his confirmation. Sometimes you get, you get questions. Sometimes you get put in situations where, where you need to know and so that, that's, why, that's why he said, give her some bread. And then tells the disciples and the mom, dad, and everybody, well, now don't tell anybody about this. How is that gonna work? One of the honors of my life, one of my places of gratitude for this congregation is that when my parents reached the age in their life where they needed to to be somewhere as they prepared to go and spend eternity with the Lord, they chose this place. They chose to live here in this town. They chose to worship with us. And they allowed me, their oldest son, to actually be their pastor as they prepared to meet Jesus. Their health was failing. My father's first, then my mother's. And as my mother suffered from the implications of Parkinson's disease and a fall that she had and the medications interaction with the Parkinson's and she began to, to lose touch with reality a little bit, there were some moments of clarity. One of those moments of clarity, we were sitting in a hospital room and she was about to go into a surgery and she looked at me and she said, hey, Carrie, what if there's something in my life that I haven't confessed to Jesus and I don't know? I'm like, Mom, you, you, you've been serving Jesus your whole life. You're a pastor's wife. You went to Bible college. You, you've played music in churches all over the world. 
Don't you remember the song you taught me? Which one? Jesus loves me? Yeah. Hey, mama, if Jesus loves you, he's gonna take care of you in this surgery. As a result of that surgery, she ended up with a kind of an onset of dementia that caused our conversations to sometimes start with me being me, then I was my brother, then I was my other brother, then I was my dad, then I was me again. It kind of conversations go all around. When I got the phone call from the nursing home where she was at, that she was, she'd had something was wrong. They thought maybe a stroke. She wasn't responsive. And I, I quite honestly left my office here and drove out to the nursing home. And it was a Friday evening. And you, as a congregation, people responded so beautifully, members of the staff, members of the board. Um, but but we, there were some moments where y'all just made it all happen so that I never was able to not leave her side for the last 72 hours of her life. And growing up as a preacher's kid, um, we had lots of fun stuff in our world, not the least of which was the fact that my mother had a full set of dentures from the time she was 19, <laughs> uppers and lowers. Before she became a mother, she lost all her teeth. <laughs> she would smile at you with those dentures. And when we were kids, when we were babies, if we got fussy in church, she would kind of take her tongue and put it behind her teeth and like make them come out. Nobody else could see it but us, right? And it would like calm us down. And when she would do it, she would like wrinkle her nose in this little kind of thing. I mean, I saw her do it to both my brothers and I'm, I'm like, did you do that to me? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It was kind of her little thing. So you can imagine when I'm sitting there having all these discussions through the night, Friday night, Saturday night, on Sunday morning about 3 a.m., through all the medications, basically she was in hospice care. There was a moment when she rolled over in her bed and I, I looked over and I said, Mom, you okay? Now, they already had her teeth out. But she took and wrinkled her nose in that same little way that she always had. And I don't care what you think about it, I know what it did for me. <laughs> I knew she was gonna be just fine. So that seven or eight hours later, when I'm sitting up next to her bed and my brothers have arrived from out of state and we're all there, and we're listening to her breathing get more and more shallow. There was a moment when her last breath hit my cheek. I mean, I was that close. And she didn't breathe again. But because, because she wrinkled that nose at me, I had one more, one more piece of evidence in my heart. She was just fine, thank you very much. And she was in the presence of Jesus. And what I want you to know is that when Jesus looked down at that little girl and said, Talitha Kumi, my child, arise. And then said, hey, give her something to eat. And by the way, don't tell anybody about this. It was Jesus' way of letting them know and letting us know 
that where there is hope in the midst of our loss. This morning, whether you're with us on campus or online, or you're watching us later this week on demand, my prayer for you is that you will know that you can trust Jesus Christ with everything you've got, including your questions, including your pain, including your loss. Because my friend, Jesus is in the business of helping people discover hope. And he wants to do that for you. If you're on campus, would you stand with me? There's an old, old song of faith and trust. We're going to sing it together. Trust me, precious Jesus.
Would you pray with me? Abba, Papa, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Jairus was willing to lay down his pride, his position, to risk it all by coming to the feet of Jesus. And thank you that Jesus responded to him and responds to us. And today, Lord, there are so many, so many of us who have encountered pain and loss and suffering, not just in the last three years, but for some, for our entire lives. And today we need to remember that you are the giver of hope. You are the healer of our soul. You are the one who gives us eternal life. So we thank you and we praise you. And we ask that you would help us to live in such a connection with you that the people closest to us and the people in our sphere of influence would see you in us. For it's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray.